0: This episode is all about commercial property. It's known to be riskier than residential property, but why is that? And given the sector spans retail, industrial, office space, from small shops to office blocks, how does the average investor even know where to start?
1: So having a debt-free property in 10 years and a large passive income, it it can give you cash flow quickly compared to residential property. So anyone who's just looking to diversify or build a passive income uh, or can take on a little bit more risk, I'd say commercial is right for them.
0: download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right the, the au We're joined today by Steve Polisi, author of Commercial Property Investing Explained Simply, and buyer's agent as well. Steve's been buying commercial property of all shapes and sizes all across Australia for some years now, and we figured it's time we delved into this topic. So thank you for joining us, Steve. And I will say very quickly, Chris isn't with us. Unfortunately, he's uh, been called away. So it's just you and I, Steve, and thanks for coming along.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me on.
0: So look, my business is all residential, we, except for owner-occupied commercial. We don't look at commercial property for investors. And I'm often asked questions about, I know Chris uh, and I have talked about doing an episode on this. So I guess give us a, a quick snapshot that um, how does commercial property investment differ from residential? What are the, sort of the key pointers here?
1: Okay. So the main difference is obviously residential, that's someone's home, where they're going to live. Whereas a commercial property is any property where a business operates out of. So you can obviously have mixed use, you could have a residential property and a commercial under the one roof, but it's generally any property that a business is going to operate out of.
0: And so from an investor's point of view, there's some reasons why an investor would look at commercial, but there's also some challenges that they would have that they won't have when they're looking at residential. Can we sort of Tap into that and understand a bit about what that is, what those challenges are, and why they come about?
1: Yep. Okay. So, one of the main reasons people go to commercial property is obviously the cash flow. So, you get a, a much, much higher cash flow. Like we're generally talking five to seven percent net yields. Um, and I use the mm-hmm. word net because uh, with residential, you typically refer to a gross yield, as you know, whereas with the commercial space, Normally, the tenant will pay 100% of the outgoings. So basically, the rent you're getting minus whatever loan you have on the property, that's the return that you're going to get. Um, the reason why everyone doesn't just flock to it is it's a much more of an unknown space. There's, there's a lot more moving parts than residential. Um, yes, you need to look at all the usual fundamentals, so like infrastructure spending, population growth, migration to the areas, things like that. But then you also need to understand businesses. So you need to look at, because when you buy the commercial space, you're also somewhat investing in the business that's going to be there. And mm. then just analyzing that type of area is going to be completely different for depending on what commercial space you buy. Like a retail is going to be more dependent on foot traffic and flow, whereas industrial space is going to be versatility and exactly where it is and what area it's servicing. And then office is obviously has got to be near the people that actually need to work there.
0: I think you sort of answered one question really, which is one of the reasons that people invest in residential property is because they think they understand it because they live in it and yeah. one, probably one of the hurdles is that lack of understanding, which is actually very interesting and it's a good point because um, I would argue most people don't understand residential property either, but, but commercial is a lot more complicated and you've just said that you've got to actually understand the nature of the business and the activities that go into that. Now, there are... <laughs> There's a lot of change obviously 2020 last year was was full of change and it's accelerated a lot of change a lot of uh, in a lot of aspects of our lives and certainly in business but before that even there's been change in terms of retail moving a lot of businesses online warehousing you know drone deliveries all sorts of uh movements how do you see I guess where you know and let's look at small investors for a minute right because you know, higher net worth investors can go and spend multi million dollars on you know shopping centres and office blocks and all that sort of stuff. But the, indiv- the you know, most uh, individual investors aren't spending that sort of money on a- on a commercial investment, right? Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that, that's one of the misconceptions as well, because we hear all the statistics about like our retail spending down. But like you said, it's only the millionaires and billionaires buying that. The mum and dad investors, they're not going to go out and buy a Westfield shopping centre. So that statistic doesn't really apply to them. They need to be looking at the suburban stats. So what how are cafes doing and hairdressers and barber shops and nail salons and things like that, because they're the ones that are probably the most likely going to buy.
0: And so how, I mean, where do you start
1: you you just got to educate yourself much like residential you'll you'll naturally gravitate towards one type and then you'll kind of dive deeper in that field Um, I generally recommend if you were going to start out go industrial Um, the reason I like industrial is you can get a little bit of comfort in the numbers so like if you're going to buy a small industrial warehouse you can look at all the other warehouses in that complex and the adjoining complex what they rent for, what they sell per, for per square meter, find the ones that went vacant, how long they were vacant for. So you can get some confidence in those types of numbers. Whereas going out and buying, I don't know, like a, a freestanding medical building, for instance, that one's a bit harder. It sounds, sounds like a really good tenant, but you're not going to have 30 mm-hmm. comparables like you're going to with the industrial.
0: Actually, that's a really good point. And yeah, you know, I want to unpack this in a number of different elements to this. Right, first of all, you know, you're talking about an industrial unit, which is effectively an strata building, correct? Correct. Um, where they're built, and you you see them around, and there's there might be 20, say, industrial. Warehouse is fairly smallish in the total scheme of things with a central driveway and car parking and all that sort of stuff. And you're absolutely right. A lot easier to price that, but not very scarce, correct? Does sca- and because in residential, scarcity matters. Does scarcity matter in industrial as well?
1: It definitely does, but it depends where you're buying. So, funnily enough, vacancy rates for industrial at the moment are actually quite tight. So, like Sydney's 2.2, Melbourne's 2.8%, and Brisbane's 3.2%. So, you mm. actually can get that. But much like residentials, it's, it's all about checking and doing the due diligence. Because if you buy in an industrial complex and it's completely surrounded by residential properties and there's nothing on the cards for them to be building any more warehouses, you know that's a fairly secure investment. As long as population growth is increasing, demand for that industrial space is going to be increasing as well. And a lot of the times it's only three to six months vacancy, which I know is going to scare off a lot of residential investors. They're going to think, oh, three, six months vacancy, that's ridiculous but on average, you're going to have the tenant seven to 15 years. So it's actually not that much different to having a residential property where you lose your tenant every two or three years for a few weeks. So that's also one of the reasons why I recommend industrial spaces. It's a really versatile asset and they normally get filled a bit quicker because anyone can move into a commercial space like an industrial warehouse. Like it can be a car mechanic, a wholesaler, fabricator, distributor, storage, things like that. Whereas buying something like the medical center, I said before, that's generally going to be stuck as a medical center. So if you ever lose that tenant, there's not a thousand doctors putting up their hand to take over a failing medical center. So it's about versatility and getting that kind of that that, reducing the risk, getting the cash flow, but trying to reduce the risk.
0: Now it's, you know, back in my early days in real estate, you know, I was told certain things. And and one of the things I, I talk about with a lot of our clients as well is that you know there are there's all these rules of thumb in property, certainly in residential, and then there's exceptions to the rules, and I suspect it's probably similar in uh, in the commercial space as well. Um, for instance, we were always told that um, you know there's there's offices, there's retail, and then there's industrial, and so there's. If you're going to have retail, then commercial, and industrial, I think basically. And whenever there's a property boom, you know, industrial is the last one to take off. And it's always the first one to slow down. That was what we were told. Is that true? Is, does it, is there anything in that?
1: G- generally not. It's going to be case by case, maybe 50 to kind of 30 years ago, yes. But with e-commerce and things like that now, it, it's a different world. So even like the next five years is going to look completely different in the office space, for instance, because of COVID and people are working mm-hmm. from home. So I, I, I try not to make any blanket comments because it's depend on what asset you're buying, where you're buying and the longevity of that asset. So it, it's always going to be case by case.
0: So what options have you talked about um, getting into, for, the, for someone to start off uh, looking at industrial as a safer way because of the, basically because of the, the information you have at hand to be able to compare one property against another. And I guess in a way that's the versatility of tenants. So you've got like nice spread, spread there, but you also got the ability to be confident with whatever price you pay. Yeah, um,
1: exactly beyond,
0: right. Yeah, because I mean, and that's another thing that I learned early on in property, it's like if you're trying to price a residential property based on yield, well, you're going to be wrong. But if you you, you need to have yield in, in mind when you price a commercial property, in fact, a value a very early on said to me, that is the only way to value a commercial property. Now, I, I suspect that's not exactly the truth or, or exactly the full story. How do you go through the process, not just of industrial, that's sort of easy because, as I said, you've got comparables, but how do you go through the process of working out what's the right price to pay?
1: Yeah, so what you alluded to before, that commercials are generally pl- uh, priced off the yield that they're returning, but it's going to be still case by case because having a really strong tenant, is going to reduce the yield. So you're actually going to mm. pay more for that type of asset than say something that's on a one-year lease. And then something with a really expensive fit out, you might pay a little bit more as well. So it's always going to be case by case, but you're you're actually right. They they are priced on the return and the rules of thumb do apply. So like something like a warehouse and that's why industrial I said is good for the beginner is then that rule of thumb is going to be pretty generic and work 99% of the time because it is just floor space and some concrete tilt-up panels. So you can kind of compare 200 square meter warehouse with another 200 square meter warehouse, but then you just kind of lick your thumb and say, oh, cool, this one's got a five-year lease versus a three-year lease. It's a strong business versus a weak business, things like that. Um, much, much like residential, you can generally kind of value a house, but one with a nicer fit out, for instance, is going to go for a bit more.
0: Yeah. And so with residential, right? And it's another bit of a myth, but, you know, it's a truth, but it's a myth at the same time. It's got exceptions to the rule that, you know, the value is in the land, right? But in residential, the land's got to be in an area where land is valuable for that to really matter. Um, So with industrial or commercial, if you're basing the value on what you pay on the yield and also the offsetting the risk of, of finding a new tenant you know so if you've got a good tenant in place, there's a level of risk that you don't have there right and so that's worth something these are all sort of external measures aren't they I mean like if if something major happens in terms of the business um you know if if that if that becomes an obsolete business, or a whole a whole industry is obsolete, or that tenant sort of vacates after nine years, and and the the actual estate is not in vogue, or you know what I mean, it, you've seen some that are a little bit like ghost towns. How does that impact on the actual value of the property?
1: Yep. So it's a similar residential. It's like buying a residential property in a mining town, and the mine closes, that becomes a ghost mm-hmm. town. You lose a the price there. The, the difference with commercial is, yes, you can get burnt if you don't know what you're doing. Whereas with residential, if you're buying a good fundamental capital city property, worst case is you might have some big maintenance bills and things like that. Whereas commercial, say you buy a, a retail shop and it's a street back from the main street, you can't compare the main street properties with that street back because they've got completely different foot traffic. So the chance of vacancy is much, much higher if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, but like you said, with different industries, I, I try to buy things that are really versatile and going to be there long term. Like I, I stay well away from petrol stations because I don't know how that outlooks going to be over the next five, 10 years <laughs> with electric cars. Uh, much like I see lots of um, banks going on online and they're on really, really strong 8, nine, 10% yields. But I won't touch them because I don't think there's going to be a bank where you actually walk into in the next five years. I I personally haven't walked into a bank in five years.
0: Well, that's actually funny, isn't it? Because the banks have actually been offloading their um, investment portfolios over quite a few years now. Um is that in there? I mean, they know what they're about to do, don't they? I yeah, mean, they, they, they know
1: they're down <laughs> floor space. I, I've heard from some people in the industry, they're reducing it by two thirds. So it's going to be a third of what it was. And there's no need. You walk into a bank now and it's it's 99% like space. Like there's no one there. There's one person at a desk and maybe someone like behind a counter and that's it. So yeah, that, that's a shifting industry as well. But, but that's why I kind of recommend buying like industrial because there's always a need for floor space, especially if you're in a scarce area.
0: But it's it's interesting because, you know, I talk to a lot of people in a lot of different industries and the offshoring, for instance, has also reduced pressure on office space in recent years. And yet there's a lot of businesses, large businesses bringing offshoring back into this country. So they need desk space. And so there's sort of a bit of a moving feast here. But what do you see in, in that space happening?
1: So I generally avoided office space even prior to COVID. Um, one, of, one of the reasons for that is for me, it's, it's similar to like a high-density apartment. You're not actually getting the land component. You're buying something for airspace and purely demand. And for me, it's risky because if you're buying an office space in, say, a 20-story skyscraper and then next door's a three-story one and they knock that down and build another 20-story one, all of a sudden there's going to be pressure on your rents to stop your tenants from leaving if you're at the end of a lease. So I've never really bought them, but just generally, it's going to be a bit of a shifting space. Obviously, the big companies in the city are going to downsize. Um, The people I speak to, they're calling it the hub and spoke model. So they're going to downsize in the CBDs, but then open up little kind of satellite ones around the fringes of the city. Um, And that Mm. way they can actually get more talent as well, because they can get people that live three hours away or so that they're happy to drive in an extra hour, two or three times a week to their job. So it actually increases their data pool there.
0: Yeah, we in uh, interviewed Soren um from oh, Work Club uh, a couple of episodes back, and we did talk ab- about that exact um, exact change that's on the horizon. It's sort of interesting. It's a bit of a movable feast as well, because let's face it—you know—the whole hybrid model of working in the office, not working in the office, working from home, all that sort of stuff—it's still it's still sort of settling, isn't it? Still sort of really taking shape. So. What about, so, okay, so that's, we've talked about office, you don't love it. Um, What about those? And we'll get to regional in a minute. I mean, you talk about industrial being, you know, lesser risk for uh, new or first time uh, commercial investors. What about the retail? What's happening there?
1: Yep, so retail, I actually still quite like. So I, I buy a lot of regional retail. Um, or -hmm. what I call like suburban retail. So like I call it essential retail. So that's the ones where you need to go face to face. So like a physio or a a barber or hair salon or nail salon or um, takeaway or cafe or something like that where you're generally going to go face to face. Uh, But again, I'm not going to buy like the ones in the big shopping center. I'm talking about like the little strips in the suburban town where there's maybe 12 in a row kind of thing and they service that area. Um, I, I don't mind those. Uh, funnily enough, a lot of those like cafes and things like that in those suburban areas have actually increased their business since COVID. So it's all about just analyzing the market, what they're servicing, what the foot traffic's like, where people are working from. Uh, and yeah, that that one, you can be safe because you can, you can look at what future developments are on the cards. And if they're the only retail and that population's grown and they're not going to build anything that's going to compete with it, you know you're going to have 5, 10, 15 years of kind of some security.
0: It is sort of interesting that, uh, you know, cafes have seen increased traffic um, and a large amount of that I would imagine is from people working from home. (laughs) So it's distributed that from from the uh, CBDs. But... You know, you drive down Oxford Street, for instance, in Paddington in Sydney, and there's police signs that it looks like on every third shop. I mean, clearly, the idea of small, you know, strip shops um, being a good investment isn't necessarily the case everywhere. What's the difference between, say, something like they there and a regional town
1: it's just going to mean on the amount of stock that's on the market so funnily enough regional most regional retail is quite secure if you buy in a good regional area because the the vacancies are really low because there's only limited supply of stock they've got their main street and that's it so if there's only mm-hmm. one vacancy in 30 shops for instance um, you know you're probably only looking at a say six to 24 month as a worst case vacancy uh, but then something like a CBD, the stock can just be oversupplied and it depends where it is as well. So I used to work in Bondi Junction and the main streets near the Westfields were fine. You literally go 20 metres away from those streets and there's vacancy signs everywhere. So I, I, I prefer the kind of suburban retail just because you know what's there, that's it, they're not building anything in the future, you can get some comfort in those numbers. Uh, but again, you need to do your due diligence. It's going to depend what you're buying and where you're buying.
0: Now, you said, you know, you might have a six to 24 month vacancy, Now that would strike absolute fear into the heart of most property investors. Um, and obviously, you know, banks deem commercial property to be riskier than residential, because, you know, obviously, you need a higher, um, higher equity to be able to get in, to borrow the money to get into it. And obviously, you've got to have pretty good um, cash reserves to be able to fund a period of time, up to two years without a tenant. You know, how do people stay the course? You know, what I mean, that you'd have to have an enormous amount of faith that you've actually got a decent asset if you're potentially going to be sitting without a tenant for two
1: years. It, it is, and that, that's why you need to know what you're doing with commercial. Like with residential, like I said before, you can buy a mediocre property in an okay suburb and you're going to be okay. Like you might be 50, 100 bucks a week out of pocket with interest rates the way they are, but commercial, you need to be prepared for those kind of longer holes. Generally, any times in my personal commercial properties are coming up for lease renewal, I'll make sure I have minimum 12 months worth of cash for um, the interest repayments on that debt so I can handle that vacancy. But then it's just going to depend on the individual. Like if I've got a mum and dad investor and they don't own any investment properties, I'm not going to throw them into a commercial. But if I've got a high income earner or a low risk client, then you can look at that. Or if they've got a large residential portfolio ready and they're trying to beef up their cash flow.
0: Mm, Yeah. But, um, okay, so what due diligence needs to be done. I mean you talk about doing your research and doing your due diligence but how do people sort of get some certainty that they are actually buying without taking enormous risks?
1: So there is no certainty in this game but generally you just want to tick as many boxes as you can. So obviously the first one you're going to check is the area. So just find out, much like residential, find out what the area is doing, what the population growth is, where the infrastructure is going, where people are commuting to and working from, what areas that um, that region services. Um, And then once you find the property, whether it be industrial or retail or office, um, then you need to look at the big one for me is the vacancy rate. So try to do as much due diligence as you can to find out what the demand for that type of property is. And that's equivalent to effectively the vacancy rate, because if it's in high demand, you're going to have a low vacancy rate. If it's in low demand, you're going to have a high vacancy rate. So uh, I talk to property managers on the ground as the first way. That's probably the quickest way for them. So they can find out, cool, when stock comes on the market, how long is it sitting there for? Um, and then what demand it is, then you can start actually going through all the comparables. So find the leasing rates per square metre, what people purchase them for per square metre, and then just start ticking off those boxes. Um, then you're also going to have to look at the business. So how long has there been business operating? Do they have multiple stores or locations? What's the length of the lease? Um, then you're going to have to do a full lease review as well. So you're going to have to check things like there's, there's bonds and guarantees on commercial leases. So you need to understand leases. So you'll go through all that then you'll look at things like the versatility of the space you're buying. So if the tenant ever leaves, what can you do with it to get a tenant in quickly? Um, then there's also value add opportunities. So making sure they're paying like fair market rent. Can you add any extra streams of income on top of it? Can you renovate it? Things like that. So th- there's a lot more moving parts than the rather residential and that's why you need to be well informed before you just go out and buy one.
0: Yeah. Um, there's, you know, I think... <laughs> That's preaching to the hymn uh, to the uh, choir here in terms of being well informed, but one thing that I find you know whenever i as i said we on occasion we don't do a lot of it, but we do help owner occupiers buy commercial that is when a, an owner of a business actually wants to buy a commercial space, and certainly what we know is that the access to information on commercial property is a lot less ready than it is for residential now do do you agree with it do you find or is it just because you do it day and day you find it very easy
1: No, no, it's it's very tedious. So it's not like residential where you just type in, oh, what's the vacancy rate of this suburb? And it kind of pops up on Google. You you actually need to go on something like CoreLogic and actually click through every single comparable, see if they had a sales campaign, how long it took, what rate they ended up getting, speak with agents, speak with property managers. Every property you do, the due diligence is very tedious. It's not as easy as click and send like you can with residential.
0: Yeah, it's Totally murky, I have to say. The other thing I thought was really interesting as well is because um, and I actually went and I didn't actually buy it but I was looking at a commercial building for my own business some years back and and I marvelled at the fact I didn't actually need to register to bid at that auction. Uh, now, in a, in New South Wales and in, in many states, you do need to register to bid at auction. And um, I think, from what my understanding is, that the assumption is that, or the, the premise is that, you know, if you're buying a residential home, you're not necessarily a savvy or educated buyer. But if you are buying a commercial property, you're assumed to be an educated buyer, and so you don't need to actually go through the registration
1: process. It, it,
0: I think that's a bit uninteresting. <laughs> have you ever sort of pondered that?
1: Yeah, but the commercial is also a little bit of an unregulated space as well. It's like mm. uh, besides the Retail Leasing Act, like industrial things like that, you can actually have whatever criteria you want on a lease. Like you can literally negotiate everything. So it's basically just like a personal transaction between the two parties. So it, it's a different space. There's no governing body or anything like that. It's Yeah, it's a little bit Wild West.
0: Yeah, it is. And you obviously need to get a lawyer involved in the negotiating of that lease if you're, you know, if you're renting a space or if you're actually um, owning a, a commercial property and, and leasing it yep. to someone else. There's no standard residential tenancy agreement that you can <laughs> you can trot out. Uh, so obviously your costs and your advisor costs are going to be higher as well, Right.
1: Yeah, it is, but not not greatly. Like you might pay an extra couple grand for for a few legal fees and things like that, but when you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, I, I wouldn't put that to put people off
0: the elephant in the room.com.au. We did talk earlier about, you know, the type of investor that can buy property. And you did sort of allude to different types of investors might buy different types of properties. Can you give us a bit of an overview as to who might be right to invest in commercial and who might not?
1: Uh, so the, the first people that would buy commercial, obviously, slightly higher net worth people that can handle the longer vacancy periods, uh, but if you know what you're doing and you're trying to build a passive income quickly, commercial is going to get you there a lot quicker. Like a, a, if you go out and generally buy, say, a $500,000 commercial property on a 7% net yield um, with interest rates the way they are now on a 70% loan, you're talking about twenty five grand a year passive income. So when I, when I pose it like that to people and say, look, you could buy two $500,000 properties and you're going to have a small passive income of $50,000, they start kind of scratching their head going, there might be something in this like early retirement might actually be possible. And the other kind of point out, the fact I point out is a commercial property on a six and a half to 7% net yield actually pays itself off in less than 10 years. So having a debt-free property in 10 years and a large passive income, it it can give you cash flow quickly compared to residential property. So anyone who's just looking to diversify or build a passive income uh, or can take on a little bit more risk, I'd say commercial is right for them.
0: Now, I want to talk about the risk because the you know I'm I'm sitting go wow my God what am I doing you know what have I been doing focusing on residential and my ears are pricking and and the problem is that you know I'm not disputing what you're saying but I am I am mindful that a lot of property spruikers come out with similar claims right and you know and I'm talking about property spruikers spruking you know residential crap Um so it's compelling but there's never that sort of opportunity without risk. Correct. So can we talk about the
1: risks? Yeah, so the the main one with commercial is obviously the vacancy period Like, because buying the mediocre residential property and having a tenant is fine, buying a mediocre commercial that sits there vacant for two, three years, that's actually going to put a big halt to your investing as well because banks aren't going to lend to you because you're all of a sudden going to have this debt with no Mm -hmm. income coming in. So that's why I always try to buy the really low-risk ones, the ones with the versatility. Uh, but the, the risks are obviously, um, the tenant defaults and can't pay the mortgage. So the only thing you're going to get out of them is either, um, the bond or you can actually get what's called a personal guarantee on the leases. So a lot of the business owners will actually put their like house or something like that up for collateral to pay out their mm-hmm. lease. So you can actually mitigate that that way if you're getting a personal guarantee. So if you're on a, say a five-year lease, you at least know, cool, I'm most likely going to be good for those five years. After that, that's the unknown because if the market shifts and COVID hits or, I don't know, World War III kind of erupts, like that, that's you're not going to know, but people are still going to need a roof over their heads, whereas businesses shift with time goes on. Um, but for me, it's, it's just similar to residential. Just do the due diligence, tick all the boxes, be aware of those risks, that longer vacancy period, um, and you're generally going to be okay long term. Like I'm, I'm not saying it's no risk. I'm just saying there's a way to get really high cash flow if you know what you're doing.
0: So on that, I mean, certainly when it comes to residential, I would say don't ever buy for yield. You know, you've, you've, the yield's not good enough anywhere. And if it is, then your capital growth is going to be in the toilet. So, you know, we're talking and, and yield and risk are sort of, um, you know, well, yield is a function of risk really. So how do you look at the growth side of things or is it just not something you worry
1: about? it depends what purpose you're buying for so a lot of the times i'll actually buy in a much better blue chip area for a tenant but they'll actually get less return on the cash flow so we'll get like say a four or five percent net return but we're buying Mm -hmm. a really good blue chip asset that's going to have the capital growth Um, but just to point a note is commercial properties actually do grow on average they do Mm -hmm. they grow five to six percent per annum long term and they actually have to. Otherwise, you'd end up with residential properties being $5 million and then you'd have a warehouse sitting next to that for 500000 So there has <laughs> to be some parity um, that actually has growth. I think a lot of that, that comes from actually office spaces don't grow. And that's much like right. the argument that high-density apartments don't grow the same as houses. But mm. it's very hard to get a solid stat with commercial because what are they talking about? Are they talking about office spaces? Are they talking about retail? Are they talking about warehouses? Or here's one. So like um, the example I used before, if you buy a medical center that's say a converted house, what growth is that going to have? Because it's a residential property, it's bare bones, but it's got a commercial tenant in it. So that one, theoretically, you could argue you get the best of both worlds.
0: <laughs> Although a lot of them are located on main roads and they 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 cop it for capital growth. Um,
1: yeah, yeah so, exactly. Right. But the same like residential, you buy something silly and you don't get the capital growth.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and look, I think that also comes back to that lack of clarity in the data and being able to pull it apart and understand on a micro level, I would suspect. I'm putting words in your mouth here, but it's it's much the same with, you know, with investing in residential property. If you you, you can't use macro data to make decisions on a micro level. And I'm guessing it's a little bit the same, but even harder, really, because you're finding it even more difficult to pull out that individual uh information that actually gives you or points you in the right direction for a specific type of property in a specific area
1: yeah that's right and commercial grows in slightly different cycles as well to residential it's not going to precisely follow it obviously the Mm. economy is going to drive it but then just demand for that type of tenancy. because if you've got a a commercial investment that's really high demand that's going to push rental increases up and as we discussed before how it's priced off the yield that you're buying if you get three percent rental increases year on year that's going to effectively equate to 3% capital growth year on year.
0: There's an element of fashion though, isn't there? I mean, see, the weird thing is, so you talked about a building, you know, an office building a scenario where another one might be built next door and all of a sudden it's it's newer, shinier. And so a, a building, an owner of an of an office suite, for instance, is going to have to entice their tenants to stay rather than move to the shiny new building. So it's a little bit like brand new apartments. I think there is probably that similar that uh, that comparison there. But there is an element of fashion, right, with these buildings. And so, how how do you avoid that?
1: Well, as I kind of mentioned before, I actually stay away from office buildings. I just don't like them as an investment because, as we mentioned before, as well, is a lot of the growth comes from the land as well. So I like to buy industrial or retail that has a land component. So whether or not you own own it, you still have that significant land component for the space.
0: Yeah. But even with industrial, like, you know, the old, you know, Pebble Creek industrial warehouses, you know, there's an element of there's certain types of businesses that go in there wouldn't care, but there's others that, that won't want to go there, you know, and there's, there's got to be an element of trend around that and, and finishes and all that sort of stuff
1: in that space too. Yep. And that's part of that's part of the due diligence as well, Veronica. So like, um, funnily enough, some areas, the lower cost warehouses are actually in higher demand than the nice ones. Because if that area is servicing like, I don't know, it's an industrial area where they're just like, they're shipping. So say you're next to a port and it's just for storage of stock before they put it on a boat. That one doesn't have to be all fancy. They don't actually see any any clients, yeah. whereas the industrial ones that might have some face to face, like a mechanic or something like that, that obviously needs to be slightly nicer. Then, if you got like a a new age company that's got like a lot of I don't know robots or something like that in the warehouse, they're going to want something newer. So it's all yeah. about assessing where you're buying, what the tenants want in that area. Um, there's going to be rough areas that kind of do well, and then there's going to be really nice areas that do well, and then there's going to be the mix in between.
0: So you can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> what about zoning? Because you know the biggest uplift anyone's going to get in um, their property value is really in a one-off zoning change, right? So, and you know, I was driving through Marrickville the other day. I was driving through Alexandria the other day in, in Sydney. We're talking in Sydney, and these are these are inner urban areas, and there's a lot of this light industrial. Um, properties around there and you can still see the signs of some of them are really just getting gearing up to to be converted to residential or to be redeveloped I should say as residential um, is that something that I mean that's obviously risky because you're you're betting on future developments in areas but obviously that's a big uplift for someone who's investing in um, uh, in industrial property potentially is that something that you get involved in or what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I, I always buy with today's data, not tomorrow's data. So I make that would be, for me, a value add. So when you've done all your due diligence and say, I'm happy with this property, what are the value adds? You'd be like, value add is zoning change in this area, which might give me uplift. Uh, funnily enough, we actually work both ways as well with commercial. Sometimes it, changing it to residential zoning can actually increase the price because the houses are in a better cycle than the commercial. And then on the flip Mm. side, obviously, if you're getting a better kind of square metre rate um, in the industrial space, changing a a residential to a mixed use where they actually build more. Um, But, again, it's going to be case by case. It's Trying to to do that for retail is going to be completely different to doing it for industrial.
0: Yeah, well, it's sort of funny too because you do see these um, in certain areas you do see certain buildings that originally was a shop for instance it's on a main road and it's been zoned residential and it's like well nobody really wants to live in it so it yeah it's just, as you say it's it's downgraded the value of the property you,
1: you've got to analyze the market as well like I, I had a client bring to me a property it was a cafe and it was a little freestanding building he's like oh this is great they're building a, a 20-story apartment block next door to it and it's like that would increase the business and i say are you sure they're not building a retail underneath it as well he goes oh i have a check he yeah. came back he's like yeah they are i'm like what happens if it's a cafe? <laughs> and then he's just like, okay, I might leave that property now.
0: <laughs> it's all about knowing the questions to ask though, isn't it?
1: Exactly right. But there's, I'll admit there's a lot more questions to ask with commercial and a lot more unknowns as well where you're kind of doing a bit of a thumbsuck.
0: So, So what, what are some of the unknowns that you, you know, that you come across I mean it's the same in residential you know I often say to our clients you know we know the questions we need to ask and we know when we haven't been able to get an answer and we tell you that and then you have to make a call so what are some of those uh things that you cannot find the answers for or you'd like to and and you often can't um when it comes to advising your clients and buying investment buying um, commercial
1: investment Yeah, so there's there's a lot. Like you obviously got to look at the area and the tenant and the lease and things like that. But one of the things that's most different for for commercial is actually talking to the tenant sometimes. People aren't aware that you can actually speak to the tenant. So you can call them up Mm. and ask ask them what's their grumbles in the area, like who's their competition, are they planning to opening more stores uh, how many people work in the business? That's a big one for me as well. So I'll rarely buy into one that's got a business where there's just kind of one operator who manages everything because mm. if he if he gets sick or has a kid or whatever it may be, that business is really going to struggle. So I always make sure there's kind of two or three staff that can handle the the location. Um, but I dig deep into the actual business, how long I'm going to be there. And if you can actually get a good relationship with the tenant, you can actually both make money from it as well. In what way? So, so some of the times is they might not have the cash to do, let's say, a renovation on the property. So they want to say you're buying a retail, like a fish and chip shop or whatever it may be. They The building might be a little bit run down. They may not actually have the money to actually be able to do that themselves. But you doing it actually increases the value. But you can actually work with them where they pay for, say, half of it Or you give them some form of incentive. So like you say, oh, look, I'll I'll pay for this. It'll cost me 30 grand. But over the next five years, I want 3% rental increases or you're on a a two-year lease. Can we extend it to five years if I do this renovation? And then a five-year lease property obviously sells more for the two-year lease one. So you've actually increased capital wealth then by only throwing 20, 30 grand into it.
0: So it's about being creative on a whole new level, it with and on that too. I mean, obviously, when you bu- say when you lease a commercial property, you say you're leasing an office or a retail store, you do the fit out, right? You basically get the the shell. How does that work when you're buying?
1: So the tenant will normally do the fit out, so they'll mm. come in and, and fill it out. So that's that's part of the due diligence as well. You need to understand when you're buying it, who exactly owns the fit out, and what yeah. the make good causes yeah. are as well. Because if they leave, are they leaving it? And it's it's very important for things like um, like I own a cafe up in Brisbane. That's like one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment sitting there. So I need to know who understands that. The banks also need to know who owns that, um, and the make good clauses that are there.
0: And what's some of the what what's typical? What 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 will be usual to expect?
1: Normally, it's just make good back to where it was. um, But that's assuming that it's a simple property. So like a if if it was an empty shell or a warehouse or something like that, they'd go back to normal. So just the usual like paint the walls and make it look clean and tidy. Um, if there's a fit out though, there's always going to be a discussion because if they've got kitchens and counters and stuff like that and you think your next tenant is actually going to want that, you may actually negotiate for them to leave it there as well because there's no benefit them ripping it up and just putting it in a skip bin. Mm. But um, but that, that's that's the big thing with commercial. There's, this, there's so many kind of negotiations and unknowns and because it is that unregulated space, You can literally negotiate everything.
0: And on that, certainly with COVID, commercial tenants have had a a different experience, I guess, negotiating rental changes or whatever with their landlords than a residential tenant. It's been a completely different arrangement, right? So, you know, have you come across any stories in terms of, you know, good teamwork or bad teamwork, bad examples, what's been going on out there?
1: Yeah, most of the time it's just working with the tenant. So like the the common one I see with say industrial is they might have bought a bigger warehouse because they thought they were going to expand and then in five years' time they're still the same size but they've got a 30% oversupply so you can actually have a chat with them and say, look, how about we rent out the space and I give you a rental concession. So Mm. you get two rents that way, you've got two tenants, and you're increasing the cash flow and effectively reducing theirs. So they're a happy tenant because they've still got the capacity to actually expand should they need in the future. So the new tenant you may put on like a 12- or 24-month lease only. So you win with there. I've seen ones where just people go crazy with value-add, like they they buy a a retail shop and then they put an ATM machine in, then they put telecommunications on top, and then they've got solar panels, (laughs) and then there's residential build on top and things like that. You can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want.
0: Actually, I heard recently the ATMs losing favour. Um, yeah, because people aren't using cash.
1: Yeah, I, I don't touch ATMs anymore. I think they're they're a thing of the past.
0: What else is a thing of the past?
1: So, what do we talk about? For banks, um, petrol stations. Uh, I stay away from obviously like post offices and things like that, which sounds weird because obviously um, people are sending stuff a lot more. But I think the old conventional post office is going to need a shift into a more of a kind of industrial type one where you go in and it's purpose built for sending things out. Um, and mm, then technology. The
0: distribution centre.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. And technology is going to take it out. Be, there will be less people. You don't have to go fill out a form. It will be go walk up to a computer, press some buttons, put it in a box and then the machine will take it away kind of thing. So the, the technology sector is going to change quite a lot of things. Um, what else would there be?
0: It's, it's you know, it's funny because I've, I've, sort of been observing, and I may have got this wrong, but certainly there's um, been a bit of a market for investors buying post offices, I think their franchise, aren't they? And then obviously, then the actual building that they're housed in has been pitched as being a bit of a safe investment, a little bit like defense housing to investors. Yeah. It's like on the surface, oh, yeah, how could that go wrong? But actually, when you dig, you think,
1: oh, it's actually really shocking. It's actually quite hard for them to make money as well. Like when you actually do the sums, and they're kind of turning over a few dollars every few minutes, it's not actually that lucrative.
0: Have you ever gone into a postal shop? They're, it's, they're full of junk.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, I don't
0: know. mind you. I think your books actually <laughs> in the post office, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it's it's next to Property Investing for Dummies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> except for that, except for your book, of course, and a few other books in there. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. how It's like every time I go into the post office, which isn't very often, as I think your point is, it's like, how the hell does this, who on earth goes there to buy a gift for their kid or something? Anyway, that's just a bit of a, a bit of a, a diversion. Now, look, I do want to just sort of check in on the, on the regional side of things as well, because, of course... You know you've been buying all over the country, and so you've been doing that for some years. And and residential property right at the minute is, and I'm talking about houses more so than apartments, is going gangbusters in every, in every city and regional centre. It appears that throughout this wide country, it appears that it doesn't matter where you are, if you have a house, it's going up in value. Right, there's buyers for it right at the minute. Now that's that with a grain of salt. I mean, it's it's, but it is it's it's unusual that yep. it's it's widespread. Now, what's happening on the commercial side of things? Is there a knock on effect?
1: Yeah, it's similar. Like I mentioned before, there's going to be a parity between the commercial prices and the residential growth prices. But I won't buy in a regional town unless I'm happy with it as a fundamental investment, and that means, funnily enough, I actually need to be happy with the residential market there because that that's going to be the mm. driver. Like a driver for commercial is obviously population using that service. So you need the population growth so you need to be in a good growing area but then you also need to look at all that periphery areas of where is that industrial space or retail space servicing um, and how's it going to look long term versus what the risks are Uh, but i actually really like regional it's 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 a nice kind of little bubble that you can actually buy into and have some security
0: and they do go hand in hand, you're right, because, I mean, certainly when we're looking at at, at locations to invest in uh, in terms of a home, a house, um, you're looking at the infrastructure around you're looking at the cafes, you're looking at the retail, you're looking at all that sort of that lifestyle element to it as well. And a whole area can start to gentrify off the back of a really cool cafe.
1: Yeah, exactly right, Ben. And then if you're talking something like industrial industrial um, infrastructure spending is actually an increased demand for it because they need somewhere to store their machines and fabricate and have like bulk goods and things like that. So if they haven't built the industrial space and they're doing some major roads or hospitals or whatever it may be, that industrial space is actually become more in demand during those projects.
0: But that's quite short term though, isn't it?
1: It depends depends how long the, the project is. But again, I'd buy it on today's data, not the future data. So if I'm buying it now and the vacancy rates are really tight, And they've got all this kind of backlog of stuff they're going to be doing over the next 10 years. I know it's actually going to be actually low risk investment by buying into it. That's...
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's interesting what you say about buying in today's data. In that instance, I'd be a little bit worried personally, but in terms of the other side of things in terms of not sitting there thinking, oh look, you know, you're banking on a future zoning or future infrastructure. I think that that's a really good point because, you know, it's the same with residential. You hear people go, oh, "Look, I'm going to buy in that area because there's an airport going in or there's a, you know, a road going in or a train line or whatever." And it's like, "Well, how sustainable is that in terms of property prices for the long term? And also, is it going to go in? Because all, a lot of stuff is talked about. I was, was going to say
1: most of the time yeah. they say that, and then ten years later they're still saying the same thing. And I don't know about you, but I try to get a return like in slightly less than ten years on my residential investments.
0: Yes, well, that's you know it is very true. I look at Badger's Creek as a great example. I mean, that's been mooted for over three decades. So yeah, exactly right. But
1: there's there's so much data out there to show that you don't actually need an airport to have growth. Like there's plenty of regions in Australia <laughs> that have growth that don't have an airport. Like Byron mm. Bay, funnily enough, has been one of the best performers in the last kind of 24 months. Like it's it's not. Well, although
0: is. when when it is near an airport, you've got Ballina a half an hour away, and you've got the Gold Coast an hour north. So so in reality, that that's probably and then there's Lismore, which is much smaller. So in a way, you just Shot yourself in the foot with that argument. (laughs) Well, no, so they're they're,
1: they're not not new airports, though. They're existing ones. No. So that's my whole point. The the growth has come in the last 24 months. There's been nothing of speculation or a recent airport that's opened up next to it.
0: Well, and and this is the thing, though, isn't it? Because the reality is it's after it's built you know, in the long term as to how it's used and all that and and who it brings to the area and, and the sustainable growth and the sustainable change over time. And so then when someone announces an airport, it's definitely not the time to buy into it just in case it doesn't happen. But you need to be holding a property for decades in order to make to make those gains it's generally um, just
1: one of those kind of flavors of the month people love that the other one they love is buying new universities as well and then i ask oh, them so well yes. what are the stats to show that universities actually grow and they're just like i don't know sounds good <laughs> like <laughs>
0: well we actually did one of our suburbs trends episodes with kent lardner i think it was back in november if you anyone wants to go back there and we did actually do an, um, a whole episode on university uh towns and we're actually going to interview a buyer's agent from byron bay in a couple of weeks so we're going to be sort of digging deeper into that market as well so there's there's lots more coming on these some of these topics that we've been raising here.
1: yeah that's a point to note as well so when you're buying like commercial property in those holiday towns you also need to understand that holiday destination as well so where are the people coming from so like cairns and those ones where you might get a lot of japanese tourists for instance that's obviously hit a lot harder since COVID, whereas some yeah. local ones are actually doing so well. So that that's another kind of thing you need to analyse when you're buying the commercial space is who is actually going to that tourist destination. Is it seasonal as well? So some of these areas do really, really well over summer and then they're horrible in winter.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, and that's talking about Byron Bay, it's probably a very good example as well that it's a high Local, as in Australian demand. You know, all the up up the east coast, down the east coast, love going to Byron Bay. Right down to Melbourne, the Melbourneians love Byron Bay. So that has a, you know, that has that local demand, if you want to call it that, rather than focusing on the overseas demand. And I think probably that's one of the reasons why. And also now with the big sea change and tree change thing, it's it's highly desirable. And over years and years and years, you meet people. You always meet people that say, "I want to retire to Byron Bay." (laughs) So you know, all of that stuff comes true so it's just that general desirability and and that's really where the money starts flowing when they feel that, that that's the time to do that
1: yeah exactly and that's the confidence in the market as well of is this going to be is, is this going to be in demand long term and that's what we're talking about before hmm. much like with the commercial space
0: yeah absolutely Steve, have you got a property done by for
1: us um i don't have one specifically but the the one i always see happens is people will go out and they'll buy something that they think is a really good price so they'll say oh the cap rate of this area um cap cap rate is just net yield so the cap Mm -hmm. rate is six percent for this area i bought this property on a 6.7 percent net yield i've done really Mm -hmm. well they've haven't checked the comparable rentals and they've bought got one where they're paying twenty percent above market rent. So then what happens after the tenant gets to the end of the lease and they negotiate it back to market rent is they actually lose twenty percent capital value. So that's that's the most common one. It's just because people don't know how to check actual comparables so they'll go off what the real estate agent gave them but they're going to handpick some and square meter rates for instance are going to change depending on the floor size so like a big warehouse rents cheaper than a small one for instance and they've just looked at the two or three examples and haven't done the dog work of actually sitting there for a day clicking through all of them and talking to property managers on the ground
0: that's such a good example. It's a bit like people are comparing a square meterage rates on a, on a house on a block of land. You know, the, exactly that, the, the actual dollar rate per square meter does go down the bigger the land is. But uh, yes, yeah, very interesting. So look, thank you so much, Steve, for sharing all this with us. We'll put the link in the show notes to your book, which is,
1: do you want to say it? Uh, commercial Property Investing Explained Simply.
0: I think you do explain these things very simply. So I think that's fantastic and I really appreciate you sharing
1: sharing <laughs> this
0: with us today.
1: No problem. Thanks for your time, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's Elephant Rider training is...
0: So in this boot camp, I just want to touch on buying in a hot market. We all know the market's gone silly and it's gone silly across the country and it's pretty unprecedented. Well, it is unprecedented, which is a word that we're so sick of hearing, but every city is... Um, hot, pretty much every regional area is hot too. Okay. That's really unusual. So there's a lot of money out there trying to buy a property at the moment. And, you know, when I visit my sister in Italy, obviously it's a long time ago now, a long time before I get to do it again. And I always remember it was funny just when to hear that smart cars couldn't get on the freeway or the Autostrada, okay, so the the freeway where basically people just fang it, you know, 140 is not unusual. You can't drive a smart car on a freeway. And to be honest, most buyers trying to buy in this market is a bit like trying to take a smart car onto a freeway. They're just going to get, it's just a whole world of pain and damage and fear and all sorts of palaver going on. If you're driving a smart car, don't get on the freeway, you know, get some advice. And A lot of people look to a buyer's agent to say, oh, I want you to be able to to work a miracle to get what other people can't get. And the reality is if you've got a buyer's agent basically saying, look, you know, you've just got to pay more in order to achieve a property or I'll get it for less or all these silly silly sort of promises or I'll find the off market for you. That's not really the true solution to your problem. A lot of people think these things are the true solution, but it isn't the true solution. The true solution to your problem is making sure you buy the right property and making sure that you have in your head the right amount of money you need to pay for that property and having a good framework for understanding which property you should push yourself for on price versus another one not to push yourself. So the fact is in a hot market, you are going to have to pay a premium for anything. So if you're going to pay a premium for anything, make sure it's for the right property and then really spend the time working out what that property is worth and factor in how good it is and then work out your premium that you're prepared to pay before you start the negotiation process. But don't just think you have to throw money at it because that, that sort of attitude, there's a lot of people hit decision fatigue and they get to a point where they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I just have to pay 50 grand more or whatever. You know. But the reality is if you're doing that without actually discerning which property is worth paying that 50 grand more for, you're going to get caught out. You run the risk of buying a dud asset, you run the risk of buying the wrong property and you run the risk of paying too much for it. So if you're going to have to pay a premium, approach it calmly, work out the price and work out the premium you're prepared to pay. Be clear that it's worth paying a premium for that property, not just because everything's going up and then do your negotiations or go to auction. Please join us for our next episode. We've got Scott Phillips, Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool Australia, coming back to have a chat with us. We're going to be talking about investing in the age of low interest rates. What does it mean for all asset classes, but property specifically, we're even going to be talking about Bitcoin. Join us for a spirited and interesting, in fact, fascinating conversation. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or north shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au.
1: If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again.
0: And remember, don't be a dumbo.